This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Ted DeLorme in Fort Mill, South Carolina, during July and August 2006. Love Conquers All by Robert C. Benchley. Part 2. Chapters 6 through 10. Chapter 6. How to Watch a Chess Match. Second in the list of games which it is necessary for every sportsman to know how to watch comes chess. If you don't know how to watch chess, the chances are that you will never have any connection with the game whatsoever. You would not by any chance be playing it yourself. I know some very nice people that play chess, mind you, and I wouldn't have thought that I was in any way spoofing at the game. I would sooner spoof at the people who engineered the Panama Canal, or who are drawing up plans for the vehicular tunnel under the Hudson River. I am no man to make light of chess and its adherents, although they might very well make light of me. In fact, they have. But what I say is that taking society by and large, man and boy, the chances are that chess would be the farmer labor party among the contestants for sporting honors. Now, since it is settled that you probably will not want to play chess, unless you should be laid up with a bad knee pan or something, it follows that, if you want to know anything about the sport at all, you will have to watch it from the sidelines. That is what this series of lessons aims to teach you to do. Of course, if you're going to be nasty and say that you don't want even to watch it, why all this time has been wasted on my part as well as on yours. How to find a game to watch. The first problem confronting the chess spectator is to find some people who are playing. The bigger the city, the harder it is to find anyone indulging in chess. In a small town, you can usually go straight to Wilbur Tatnuck's general store and be fairly sure of finding a quiet game in progress over behind the stove and the crate of pilot biscuit. But as you draw away from the mitten district, you find the sporting instinct of the population cropping out in other lines and chess becoming more and more restricted to the sheltered corners of the YMCA club rooms and exclusive social organizations. However, we shall have to suppose, in order to get any article written at all, that you have found two people playing chess somewhere. They probably will neither see nor hear you as you come up on them, so you can stand directly behind the one who is defending the South Goal without fear of detection. THE DETAILS OF THE GAME At first you may think that they are both dead, but a mirror held to the lips of the nearest contestant will probably show moisture, unless, of course, they really should be dead, which would be a horrible ending for a little lark like this. I once heard of a murderer who propped his two victims up against a chessboard in sporting attitudes, and was able to get as far as Seattle before his crime was discovered. Soon you will observe a slight twitching of an eyelid or a moistening of the lips, 
and then, like a greatly retarded moving picture of a person passing the salt, one of the players will lift a chessman from one spot on the board and place it on another spot. It would be best not to stand too close to the board at this time, as you are likely to be trampled on in the excitement. For this action that you have just witnessed corresponds to a run around right end in a football game or a two-bagger in baseball and is likely to cause considerable enthusiasm on the one hand and deep depression on the other. They may even forget themselves to the point of shifting their feet or changing the hands on which they are resting their foreheads. Almost anything is liable to happen. When the commotion has died down a little, it will be safe for you to walk around and stand behind the other player and wait there for the next move. While waiting, it would be best to stand with the weight of your body evenly distributed between your two feet, for you will probably be standing there a long time, and if you bear down on one foot all of the time, that foot is bound to get tired. A comfortable stance for watching chess is with the feet slightly apart, perhaps a foot or a foot and a half, with a slight bend at the knees to rest the legs and the weight of the body thrown forward on the balls of the feet, a rhythmic rising on the toes, holding the hands behind the back, the head well up and the chest out, introduces a note of variety into the position which will be welcomed along about dusk. Not knowing anything about the game, you will perhaps find it difficult at first to keep your attention on the board. This can be accomplished by means of several little optical tricks. For instance, if you look at the black and white squares on the board very hard and for a very long time, they will appear to jump about and change places. The black squares will rise from the board about a quarter of an inch and slightly overlap the white ones. Then, if you change focus suddenly, the white squares will do the same thing to the black ones. And finally, after doing this until someone asks you what you are looking cross-eyed for, if you will shut your eyes tight, you will see an exact reproduction of the chessboard, done in pink and green in your mind's eye. By this time, the players will be almost ready for another move. This will make two moves that you have watched. It is now time to get a little fancy work into your game. About an hour will have already gone by, and you should be so thoroughly grounded in the fundamentals of chess watching that you can proceed to the next step. Have some one of your friends bring you a chair, a table, and an old pyrography outfit, together with some bookends on which to burn a design. Seat yourself at the table in the chair, and, if I remember the process correctly, squeeze the bulb attached to the needle until the latter becomes red-hot. Then, grasping the bookends in the left hand, carefully trace around the pencil design with the point of the needle. It probably will be a picture of the Lion of Lucerne, and you will let the needle slip on the way around the face, giving it the appearance of having shaved in a pullman that morning. But that really won't make any difference, for the whole thing is not so much to do a nice pair of bookends as to help you along in watching the chess match. 
if you have any scruples against burning wood, you may knit something or paste stamps in an album. And before you know it, the game will be over and you can put on your things and go home. Chapter 7 Watching Baseball DAC News 18 men play a game of baseball and 18,000 watch them. And yet those who play are the only ones who have any official direction in the matter of rules and regulations. The 18,000 are allowed to run wild. They don't have even a Spalding's Guide containing group photographs of model organizations of fans in Fall River, Massachusetts, or the Junior Rooters of Lyons, Nebraska. Whatever course of behavior a fan follows at a game, he makes up for himself. This is, of course, ridiculous. The first set of official rulings for spectators at baseball games has been formulated and is herewith reproduced. It is to be hoped that in the general cleanup which the game is undergoing, the grandstand and bleachers will not resent a little dictation from the authorities. In the first place, there is the question of shouting encouragement, or otherwise, at the players. There must be no more random screaming. It is, of course, understood that the players are entirely dependent on the advice offered them from the stands for their actions in the game. And how is a batter to know what to do if, for instance, he hears a little man in the bleachers shouting, Wait for him, Wally! Wait for him! And another little man in the south stand shouting, Take a crack at the first one, Wally! What would you do? What would Lincoln have done? The official advisers in the stands must work together. They must remember that as the batter advances towards the plate, he is listening for them to give him his instructions. And if he hears conflicting advice, there is no telling what he may do. He may even have to decide for himself. Therefore, before each player goes to bat, there should be a conference among the fans who have ideas on what his course of action should be. And as soon as a majority have come to a decision, the advice should be shouted to the player in unison under the direction of a cheerleader. If there are any dissenting opinions, they may be expressed in a minority report. In the matter of hostile remarks addressed at an unpopular player on the visiting team, it would probably be better to leave the wording entirely to the individual fans. Each man has his own talents in this sort of thing and should be allowed to develop them along natural lines. In such crises as these, in which it becomes necessary to rattle the opposing pitcher or prevent the visiting catcher from getting a difficult foul, all considerations of good sportsmanship should be discarded. As a matter of fact, it is doubtful if good sportsmanship should ever be allowed to interfere with the fans' participation in a contest. The game must be kept free from all softening influences. One of the chief duties of the fan is to engage in arguments with the man behind him. This department of the game has been allowed to run down fearfully. A great many men go to a ball game today and never speak a word to anyone other than the members of their own party or an occasional word of cheer to a player. 
this is nothing short of craven. An ardent supporter of the home team should go to a game prepared to take offense, no matter what happens. He should be equipped with a stock of ready sallies, which can be used regardless of what the argument is about or what has gone before in the exchange of words. Among the more popular nuggets of repartee, uh, effective on all occasions, are the following. Oh, is that so? Yeah? How do you get that way? Oh, is that so? So are you. Ah, go have your hair bobbed. Oh, is that so? Well, what are you going to do about it? Who says so? Eh? Well, I'll Cincinnati you. Oh, is that so? Any of these, if hurled with sufficient venom, is good for ten points. And it should always be borne in mind that there is no danger of physical harm resulting from even the most ferocious-sounding argument. Statistics gathered by the War Department show that the percentage of actual blows struck in the grandstand arguments is one in every 43 million. For those fans who are occasionally obliged to take inexperienced lady friends to a game, a special set of rules has been drawn up. These include the compulsory purchase of tickets in what is called the explaining section, a block of seats set aside by the management for the purpose. The view of the diamond from this section is not very good, but it doesn't matter, as the men wouldn't see anything of the game anyway, and the women can see just enough to give them material for questions and to whet their curiosity. As everyone around you is answering questions and trying to explain scorekeeping, there is not the embarrassment which is usually attendant on being overheard by unattached fans in the vicinity. There is also not the distracting sound of breaking pencils and modified cursing to interfere with unattached fans' enjoyment of the game. Absolutely no gentleman with uninformed ladies will be admitted to the main stand. In order to enforce this regulation, a short examination on the rudiments of the game will take place at the gate, in which ladies will be expected to answer briefly the following questions. Women examiners will be in attendance. 1. What game is it that is being played on this field? Two, how many games have you seen before? Three, what is A, a pitcher, B, a base, C, a bat? Four, what color uniform does the home team wear? Five, what is the name of the home team? Six, in the following sentence, cross out the incorrect statements, leaving the correct one. The catcher stands, one, directly behind the pitcher in the pitcher's box, two, at the gate taking tickets, three, behind the batter, four, at the bottom of the main aisle selling ginger ale. Seven, what again is the name of the game you expect to see played? Eight, 
Do you cry easily? 9. Is there anything else you would rather be doing this afternoon? 10. If so, please go and do it. It has been decided that the American baseball fan should have a distinctive dress. A choice has been made from among the more popular styles, and the following has been designated as regulation, embodying as it does the spirit and tone of the great national pastime. Straw hat, worn well back on the head. One cigar, unlighted, held between teeth. Coat held across knees. Vest, worn but unbuttoned and open, displaying both a belt and suspenders, with gold watch chain connecting the bottom pockets. The vest may be an added expense to certain fans who do not wear vests during the summer months, but it has been decided that it is absolutely essential to the complete costume, and no true baseball enthusiast will hesitate in complying. Chapter 8 How to Be a Spectator at Spring Planting The danger in watching gardening, as in watching many other sports, is that you may be drawn into it yourself. This you must fight against. Your sinecure standing depends on a rigid abstinence from any of the work itself. Once you stoop over to hold one end of a string for a groaning planter, once you lift one shovelful of earth or toss out one stone, you become a worker, and a worker is an abomination in the eyes of the true garden watcher. A fence is, therefore, a great help. You may take up your position on the other side of the fence from the garden and lean heavily against it, smoking a pipe, or you may even sit on it. Anything, so long as you are out of helping distance and yet near enough so that the worker will be within easy range of your voice. You ought to be able to point a great deal also. There is much to be watched during the early stages of garden preparation. Nothing is so satisfying as to lean ruminatingly against a fence and observe the slow, rhythmic swing of the digger's back, or hear the repeated scraping of the shovel edge against some buried rock. It sometimes is a help to the digger to sing a chanty, just to give him a beat. And then sometimes it is not. He will tell you in case he doesn't need it. There is always a great deal for the watcher to do in the nature of comment on the soil. This is especially true if it is a new garden or has never been cultivated before by the present owner. The idea is to keep the owner from becoming too sanguine over the prospects. That soil looks pretty clayey is a good thing to say. It is hard to say clearly, too. You'd better practice it before trying it out on the gardener. I don't think that you'll have much luck with potatoes in that kind of earth, is another helpful approach. It is even better to go at it the other way, finding out first what the owner expects to plant. It may be that he isn't going to plant any potatoes, and then there you are, stuck with a perfectly dandy prediction which has no bearing on the case. It is time enough to pull it after he has told you 
that he expects to plant peas, beans, beets, corn, then you can interrupt him and say, Corn? <laughs> Incredulously. You don't expect to get any corn in that soil, do you? Don't you know that corn requires a large percentage of bicarbonate of soda in the soil? And I don't think, from the looks, that there is an ounce of soda bicarb in your whole plot. Even if the corn does come up, it will be so tough you can't eat it. Then you can laugh and call out to a neighbor or even to the man's wife. Hey, what do you know? Steve here thinks he's going to get some corn up in this soil. The watcher will find plenty to do when the time comes to pick the stones out of the freshly turned over earth. It is his work to get upon a high place where he can survey the whole garden and detect the more obvious rocks. Here's a big fellow over here, Steve, he might say, or just run your rake a little over in that corner. I'll bet you'll find a nest of them in there. Plymouth Rock is a funny thing to call any particularly offensive boulder, and is sure to get a laugh, especially if you kid the digger good-naturedly about being a pilgrim and landing on it. He may even give it to you to keep. Just as a matter of convenience for the worker, watchers have sometimes gone to the trouble of keeping count of the number of stones thrown out. This is done by shouting out the count after each stone has been tossed. It makes a sort of game of the thing, and in this spirit the digger may be urged on to make a record. That's forty-eight, old man. Come on now, make her fifty. boy. forty-nine. Only one more to go. We want fifty. We want fifty. We want fifty. And not only stones will be found, but queer objects which have got themselves buried in the ground during the winter months and have become metamorphosed, so they are halfway between one thing and another. As the digger holds one of these objets dirt, gingerly between his thumb and forefinger, the watcher has plenty of opportunity to shout out, "'You'd better save that. It may come in handy some day.' "'What is it, Eddie? Your old beard?' and funny cracks like that. Here is where it's going to be difficult to keep to your resolution about not helping. After the digging and stoning and turning over has been done, and the ground is all nice and soft and loamy, the idea of running a rake softly over the susceptible surface and leaving a beautiful even design in its wake is almost too tempting to be withstood. The worker himself will do all that he can to make it hard for you. He will rake with evident delight much longer than is necessary, back and forth, across and back, cocking his head and surveying the pattern and fixing it up along the edges with a care which is nothing short of insulting, considering the fact that the whole thing has got to be mussed up again when the planting begins. If you feel that you can no longer stand it without offering to assist, get down from the fence and go into your own house and up to your own room. There, pray for strength. By the time you come down, the owner of the garden ought to have stopped raking and got started on the planting. 
Here the watcher's task is almost entirely advisory, and for the first part of the planting he should lie low and say nothing. Wait until the planter has got his rows marked out and has wobbled along on his knees, pressing the seeds into perhaps half the length of his first row. Then say, Hey there, Charlie. You've got those rows going the wrong way. Charlie will say, No, he hasn't. Then he will ask what you mean, the wrong way. Why, you poor cod, you've got them running north and south. They ought to go east and west. The sun rises over there, doesn't it? Charlie will attempt to deny this, but you must go right on, and it comes on up behind that tree over my roof and sets over there, doesn't it? By this time, Charlie will be crying with rage. Well, just as soon as your beans get up an inch or two, they are going to cast a shadow right down the whole row, and only those in front will ever get any sun. You can't grow things without sun, you know. If Charlie takes you seriously and starts in to rearrange his rows in the other direction, you might perhaps get down off the fence and go in the house. You have done enough. If he doesn't take you seriously, you surely had better go in. Chapter 9 The Manhattador Announcements have been made of a bullfight to be held in Madison Square Garden, New York, in which only the more humane features of the Spanish institution are to be retained. The bull will not be killed or even hurt, and horses will not be used as bait. If a bullfight must be held, this is of course the way to hold it. But what features are to be substituted for the playful gorings and stabbings of the Madrid system? Something must be done to enrage the bull, otherwise he will just sulk in a corner, or walk out on the whole affair. Following is a suggestion for the program of events. 1. Grand parade around the ring, headed by a brass band and the mayor in matador's costume. Invitations to march in this parade will be issued to everyone in the bullfighting set, with the exception of the bull, who will be ignored. <laughs> this will make him pretty sore to start with. 2. After the marchers have been seated, the bull will be led into the ring. An organized cheering section among the spectators will immediately start jeering him, whistling and calling, Take off those horns, we know you. 3. The picadors will now enter, bearing pikes with ticklers on the ends. These will be brushed across the bull's nose as the picadors rush past him on noisy motorcycles. The noise of the motorcycles is counted on to irritate the bull quite as much as the ticklers, as he will probably be trying to sleep at the time. 4. Enter the bandilleros, carrying various ornate articles of girls' clothing. Daisy hat with blue ribbons, pink sash, lace jabot, etc., which will, one by one, be hung on the bull when he isn't looking. In order to accomplish this, one of the bandilleros will engage the animal in conversation, while another sneaks up behind him with the frippery. 
When he is quite trimmed, the bandieros will withdraw to behind a shelter and call him Lizzie. <laughs> Five. By this time, the bull will be almost crying he will be so sore. This is the moment for the entrance of the intrepid matador. The matador will wear an outing cap with a cutaway and a Jaeger vest, and the animal will become so infuriated by this inexcusable misalliance of garments that he will charge madly at his antagonist. The matador, who will be equipped with boxing gloves, will faint with his left and pull the daisy hat down over the bull's eyes with his right, immediately afterwards stepping quickly to one side. The bull, blinded by the daisies, will not know where to go next, and soon will laughingly admit that the joke has been on him. He will then allow the matador to jump on his back and ride around the ring, making good-natured attempts to unseat his rider. Chapter 10. What to do while the family is away. Somewhere or other, the legend has sprung up that, as soon as the family goes away for the summer, Daddy brushes the hair over his bald spot, ties up his shoes, and goes out on a whirlwind trip through the hellish districts of town. The funny papers are responsible for this, just as they are responsible for the idea that all millionaires are fat and that negroes are inordinately fond of watermelons. I will not deny that for just about four minutes after the train is left, bearing mother, sister, junior, Ingeborg, and the mechanical walrus on their way to any bunk port, Daddy is suffused with a certain queer feeling of being eleven years old and downtown alone for the first time with fifteen cents to spend on anything he wants. The city seems to spread itself out before him just ablaze with lights, and his feet rise lightly from the ground as if attached to toy balloons. I do not deny that his first move is to straighten his tie. But five minutes would be a generous allowance for the duration of this footloose elation. As he leaves the station, he suddenly becomes aware of the fact that no one else has heard about his being fancy-free. Everyone seems to be going somewhere in a very important manner. A great many people, oddly enough, seem to be going home. Ordinarily, he would be going home, too. But there would not be much sense in going home now without... Oh, but come, come. This is no way to feel. Buck up, man. How about a wild oat or two? Around at the club, the doorman says that Mr. McNartley hasn't been in all afternoon, and that Mr. Freem was in at about 4.30, but went out again with a bag. There is no one in the lounge whom he ever saw before. A lot of new members must have been taken in at the last meeting. <sighs> the club is running down fast. He calls up Eddie Mastayer's office, but he is gone for the day. Oh, well, someone will probably come in for dinner. He hasn't eaten dinner at the club for a long time, and there will be just time for a swim before settling down to a nice piece of salmon steak. All the new members seem to be congregating now in the pool, and they look him over as if he were a fresh-air child being given a day's outing. He becomes self-conscious and slips on the marble floor, falling and hurting his shin quite badly. 
Who the hell are these people, anyway? And where is the old bunch? He emerges from the locker room much hotter than he was before, and in addition, boiling with rage. Dinner is one of the most depressing rituals he has ever gone through with. Even the waiters seem unfamiliar. Once, he even gets up and goes out to the front of the building to see if he hasn't got into the wrong clubhouse by mistake. Pretty soon, a terrible person, whose name is either Rigel or Roppel, uh, comes in and sits down with him, offering as his share of the conversation the dogmatic announcement that it has been hotter today than it was yesterday. This is denied with some feeling, although it is known to be true. Dessert is dispensed with for the sake of getting away from Rigel or Roppel or whatever his name is. Then the first gay evening looms ahead. What to do? There is nothing to prevent his drawing all the money out of the bank and tearing the town wide open from the city hall to the soldiers' monument. There is nothing to prevent his formally introducing himself to some nice blonde and watching her get the meat out of a lobster claw. There is nothing to prevent his hiring some bootlegger to anoint him with synthetic gin until he glows like a firefly and imagines that he has just been elected mayor on a free ice cream ticket. Absolutely nothing stands in his way, except a despairing vision of crepe letters before his eyes reading, And for what? He ends up by going to the movies, where he falls asleep. Rather than go home to the empty house, he stays at the club. In the morning, he is at the office at a quarter to seven. Now there ought to be several things that a man could do at home to relieve the tedium of his existence while his family is away. Once you get accustomed to the sound of your footsteps on the floors, and reach a state of self-control where you don't break down and sob every time you run into a toy which has been left standing about, there are lots of ways of keeping yourself amused in an empty house. You can set the Victrola going and dance. You may never have had an opportunity to get off by yourself and practice those new steps without someone's coming suddenly into the room and making you look foolish. That's one big advantage about being absolutely alone in the house. You can't look foolish, no matter what you do. You may be foolish, but no one except you and your God knows about it. And God probably has a great deal too much to do to go around telling people how foolish you were. So roll back the rugs and put on Kalua, and, holding out one arm in as fancy a manner as you wish, slip the other daintily around the waist of an imaginary partner and step out. You'd be surprised to see how graceful you are. Pretty soon, you will get confidence to try a few tricks. A very nice one is to stop in the middle of a step, point the left toe delicately twice in time to the music, dip and whirl. It makes no difference if you fall on the whirl. Who cares? And when you are through dancing, you can go out of the faucet and get yourself a drink provided the water hasn't been turned off. Lots of fun may also be had by going out into the kitchen and making things with whatever is left in the pantry. There will probably be plenty of salt and nutmegs, 
and boxes of cooking soda, tapioca, cornstarch, and maybe, if you are lucky, an old bottle of olives. Get out a cookbook and choose something that looks nice in the picture. In place of the ingredients which you do not have, substitute those which you do. Thus, nutmegs for eggs, tapioca for truffles, cornstarch and water for milk, and so forth and so forth. Then go in and set the table according to the instructions in the cookbook for a Washington's birthday party. Light the candles, and with one of them, set fire to the house. There is probably a night train for any bunkport which you can catch while the place is still burning. To those male readers whose families are away for the summer, tear the above story out along the dotted line and mail it to the folks, writing in pencil across the top, This guy has struck it about right. Then drop around tonight at 7.30 to Eddie's apartment. Joe Reddish, John Liftwich, Harry Thebolt, and three others will be there, and the limit will be 50 cents. Game will absolutely break up at 1.30, no fooling. 1.30 and not a minute longer. This concludes Part 2 of Love Conquers All by Robert C. Benchley, read by Ted DeLorme. This LibriVox recording will continue on future files.